All right. Well, let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to our text for this morning, which is Revelation chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. Revelation 16, verses 13 through 16. I know that some of you like to use the Black Pew Bibles that are underneath some of the chairs. You can find that, obviously, toward the end of the New Testament on page 198. Page 198. If you are a guest with us this morning, we're grateful that you're here. And I want you to know that we have been preaching since the beginning of this year through the book of Revelation, passage by passage, and actually we'll come to the end of Revelation uh, sometime around the turn of the year. Uh, It has been uh, an enlightening and sometimes difficult process of preaching through such a difficult book and and wanting to to pull from the text the, the real hopeful marrow of the gospel that we want to rejoice in Uh, as much as possible. After the turn of the year, though, we will be moving into a new series into the book of Philippians, the epistle of joy. So we're looking forward to that. But this morning, the Lord has brought us to this text in Revelation chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. I don't think that many of us, probably very few of us, need any reminder that we live in a hard world. It is a hard world out there. As fallen people living in a world that's under the curse of sin, we are pressed on every side by physical hardship, by spiritual hardship. Certainly the book of Revelation has brought so much more of that to light for us. And that's true even this morning as we come to this text, which, which actually raises to our attention something that, that many people wonder about. Many people even outside of churches like ours wonder about. There have been movies sort of written about it or titled after it, books written about it, a lot of speculation about what will happen in the great and final battle at the end of time often called Armageddon. As we think about that time, we also think about the things going on in our world now and what a hard world we live in. And I just feel again and again, my need and your need for hope. We have tried though imperfectly from the beginning of this series in Revelation not to get caught up in all of the kind of difficult sensational details. I know there are a lot of things in the book of Revelation that to, to modern ears just sound really strange. They don't seem to fit into our seen reality of life. But nevertheless, we want to continue gaining hope from this book. I believe that the book of Revelation is written at least in part for that very purpose so that we as the people of God will gain hope Hope about the future, yes, as we'll see this morning, but also hope for today. And so we want these truths to sustain us as we consider this morning, this future time when there will be what is really an ultimate hardship coming upon the world. If we think that life is hard now, and it is, it will really become hard then. So we want to notice a few truths from this text that we can take away for our lives today that will fill us with hope, that will give us, yes, that sobering reminder that we live in a hard world and that sin is serious and important to deal with and God will, but also that we have hope, even as we read today in the New City Catechism question responsively, that last line, did you catch that last line about Christ? Where is he now until he returns to judge and renew the whole world. That is our hope then, and that is our hope now. Well, let's begin just with verses 13 and 14 as we notice this first truth 
Some of you will be kind of catching up if you haven't been reading the book of Revelation recently, but I think that it'll be fine. You'll be able to track along, and I hope that the Lord will encourage you as he's been encouraging me. The first truth that we see this morning is that the devil comes in this text to gather God's enemies to battle. Listen to these words, starting in verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. And there's a lot there. Let's just take a moment and look at what's happening. Be reminded of who are these figures. This dragon in the book of Revelation we saw to be the devil himself who has come on the scene and he has raised up two servants. One is a beast that is like a political figure and another is the false prophet or the religious leader that will assist the devil in what he thinks is the accomplishment of his plans in the world. But all along the the way, Jesus has been on the scene in greater and greater ways and we see that coming in this text and the texts moving forward to be reminded of who is really in control. But nevertheless, at this point, John's vision shows him that the dragon, the devil, and his beast, and his false prophet will release into the world, of course, under God's providential, sovereign control of everything, three unclean spirits that he say are like frogs. Frogs might symbolize to us as we think about the plague of frogs, the kind of thing that defiles everything, everywhere it goes. It gets into every nook and cranny of the world, especially in this sense, and their deceptions and their defilement spread through these three demon spirits. I know that sounds strange to modern ears, but this is what will happen, that these spirits will go into the world and they will do a kind of work inside the devil's plan which ultimately will be thwarted, but this is what they will do. It says, verse 14, they are spirits of demons. They will perform signs. This is a good reminder to us that not everything that we see in the world is as it appears, that there are miracles and signs that do not belong to the Lord. Again, all under his control, but nevertheless, we should be alert and sober-minded about these things. And especially then, they will go out to the kings of the entire world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Now, texts like this and ones that we've seen recently remind us that the devil absolutely, absolutely is is not to be trifled with. He is clever, but he is also deceived by his own limits, and he is deceived about his real place in the world. He doesn't seem to realize, especially in places of scripture like this, how the Lord himself is playing him. It's as if he thinks that his plans are going to work, similar to what I imagined he thought were his plans working when Jesus was crucified, that he thought that he had finally won the day and he had accomplished his ultimate purpose in the world for his own kingdom, and that was thwarted. He, in fact, even then was played because we're reminded over and over again that the devil is God's devil. He is under God's ultimate control. Lots of mysteries there. We sang about it today that God works in mysterious ways. We don't understand all of that, but we know that this is true. But somehow it seems to me that the devil, that the devil doesn't. And not only is he deceived by his own limits and his own false place in the world, 
but his deceptions go out as a part of God's plan to deceive what are called here the kings of the world. We read about in other places of scripture, like in the early Psalms, Psalm 2, about the kings that plot against God. The nations, uh, the kings rage and the nations plot in vain, and yet the Lord laughs at them. He scoffs at their demise. This is another picture of that. When the world has turned against the Lord himself, these kings, these nations, they are deceived by the devil in this future day, and they are brought together. They are gathered for the war of the great day of God. Think about this. They are deceived into rallying together in a war against the God of the universe. No one in his or her right mind would ever do such a thing. Because if you see reality truly, you know who the true God is, as we read here, that he is the Almighty And that he cannot be thwarted, he cannot be defeated, but nevertheless, under the deceptions of the dragon, his beast and his prophet, they are deceived and they are gathered together for a great war. And they just don't really know, in a sense, what they're getting themselves into. Sometimes I'm reminded of weird things when I read the Bible. This is probably one, because when I read it, I immediately think about a mousetrap that is up in a closet of my office in the basement. I have a problem, this is going to sound gross, of shrews. Not mice, shrews. Now, I have caught some mice, but usually shrews, and they stink to high heaven. But I have mousetraps, the old-fashioned kind with the bar. And I put a little peanut butter onto the, the petal there and get it set just right and put it up into the... Um, space above that little closet in my office and then I just wait and every day or so I check it to see if I've caught another one of these shrews that are living up in the insulation of the of the ceiling down there and the reason that that reminds me of this is because essentially what's happening in this text is in a very small way what's happening in my office that mousetrap is deceiving those shrews it's deceiving them by appealing to their natural desire For, in this case, what is the peanut butter? They smell that peanut butter and it awakens in them this surging desire for it, as though they almost can't resist it. It puts them out of their minds in a way. And because of the surging desire for the peanut butter, their eyes, their minds, their little hearts, I guess, are deceived and blinded from the real danger that they are approaching. They're being gathered together in the closet of my office to try to win something that they want and they have no idea that they are walking right into a trap. That is what is happening in this text and that is what will happen to all of the enemies of God in the world on this great and final day. Now, we're reminded here, taking away some truth for ourselves, we need ongoing truth to feed our hearts. We know, I know, I am prone to wander. I am prone to be blinded by my own sin, by my own ruling desires, the remaining sin in my heart that is, it's so easy to play upon it and I lose sight of what is true and beautiful and good. I lose sight of the Lord himself. We should be reminded here of, Two key truths. Here's the first. Be reminded this morning of the great deceptive power 
of the devil. Think about the massive scale that the dragon and his beast and the false prophet are able to operate on in gathering the whole world, the kings of all the nations of the world that have turned against the God of the universe, that they would all gather together and align themselves on this one great mission to overthrow the God of the universe. That's incredible, incredible deceptive power. No one in the world can do this. There is no human being with this power of deception. And we ought to be reminded of this. But there's an even greater truth. It's the one that that I delight in raising. I hope it's one that you delight in hearing. And it is seeing even here as we see on every page of scripture, the overseeing sovereignty of God, even over the devil even over all of his deceptive ways and his wiles, the God of the universe is an absolute, utter, overseeing, sovereign control. None of this is happening against God's plan, ultimately. None of this is happening to the, to the worries of God's mind. He is not wringing his hands, wondering, what am I gonna do about this? He's not afraid, he's not concerned. Oh no, the kings of the world are all coming down here to fight me. I hope that I can overcome them. I wonder what they'll do. Which direction will they come from? He doesn't think like that. He doesn't experience that because he is the overseeing sovereign God of the universe. Now, why do I make such a big deal out of that truth? It's not only because that truth needs to sustain people in the future, it's because that truth ought to sustain you if you are in Christ today. Because what this means is that because God can be trusted to order the giant events of the world, he is also trusted with the small events of your life. Now, I'm going to break it to you, and I'm sort of breaking it to me because this has to be broken over me over and over again. You are unbelievably small. Your life, my life, is incredibly small. It doesn't mean that my life is not important or your life is not important to the God of the universe. In fact, that is what makes him in part so glorious and magnificent that that even when we say, who is man, that that you would take note of him, that he does, that he cares about our little lives. But it doesn't change the fact that in the grand scheme of the world, when compared to the ultimate mission of God in the world, my life is very small. Think about your favorite author, your favorite pastor. Everyone has a favorite pastor. Hopefully it's one of the three that are here today. (laughs) There is a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the world that has any idea who your favorite author is. It doesn't matter how big in the Christian scene that person could become. A fraction of a fraction of the world has any idea that that person exists. That's why some of the most faithful pastors in the world have adopted the mantra that they will preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Because that is what most pastors do. 
in some sense, that's what all pastors do. In another sense, that's what the whole Christian life is about. Because we are small. But this truth about being small is what ought to put our eyes on the things that are really big. Think about what God is doing in the world. He is doing enormous, immeasurable things. In this picture here, he is working to judge and then renew, as we heard this morning, the whole world. That ought to give us hope. That ought to give us help. Now, the way that that gives us help is it gets our eyes onto what what ultimately really matters. You and I are nearsighted. You and I are small-minded. You know that from your own experience. I know that from my own experience. When we're honest with ourselves, that's the way that we are as creatures. We are nearsighted. We have so much difficulty looking beyond this present moment, the present trouble, this immediate temptation, the tyranny of the urgent. We just get so caught in what's happening right here that sometimes we're blinded from the big, glorious, incredible realities of knowing Jesus Christ and him being the ruler of the world. On top of that, we're not just nearsighted, we're small-minded, I get so caught up in all these little things of life and I miss out on all the really big, rich issues and, and, and truths that God is delivering to me in his word in the world. These are things that this text and others need to correct in us. They need to draw our minds out from our own little worlds and into the ultimate world of God and what he is doing in that world. This is where hope comes from. This is what God is is routinely declaring to his people. Listen to this, even in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel in Isaiah 45. Listen to what he says in verses five through seven and 11 and 12. I am the Lord. There is no one else. There's no God except me. I will arm you, though you have not known me, so that people may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one Besides me, I am the Lord and there is no one else. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating disaster. I am the Lord who does all these things and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands and I ordained all their lights. Let me be real honest with you. In the last week, two weeks, three weeks, month, I have hardly ever thought about that because I'm too nearsighted. I'm too small-minded. I'm too caught up in my little world and what's happening to me that I am missing this, and God knows that. Everyone is doing that. Everyone is always doing that. Everyone has always been doing that. That's why he says this. His desire is to visit us with grace, and by that grace, to deliver us from our nearsighted, small-mindedness, so that we can appreciate what this God of ours is really doing in the world, And that would flood this present moment, all of these small things, all of the immediate issues of life, 
all of the things that are near with ultimate, ultimate gladness and ultimate joy and ultimate meaning. That's where their meaning comes from. When we think that way, we become big-sighted. I want to encourage you this morning that you would cultivate that very thing, that you would use the Word of God in such a way every day that your, your pursuit would be to become and stay big-sighted. You need, like me, the, the ongoing echo of these big truths of what God is doing in the world. You need to be, if you're not already, a part of a healthy local church that's routinely rehearsing these big truths, the ultimate truth being this announcement of good news of what Jesus Christ has done for sinners like us over and over and over again, hearing a big, bright gospel. That's what we need so that we can become and stay big-sighted, get our eyes on what is really meaningful in the world, what really matters, so that all of these little moments will become ultimately meaningful in a way that they otherwise never would. So what we're seeing in this text is that in the future, the devil is going to come onto the scene again and gather God's enemies to a battle by his deception, and they will be deceived, falling into his trap. Because the second truth that we see is that the Lord is there, and he comes in this final battle, to conquer the kings of the world. Notice what we see next in verse 15. There's the interjection of a, of a quote that may be kind of familiar to you because you've probably heard this from, from the Gospels. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes. First, I am coming like a thief. This is a hopeful reminder. This is the reminder that Jesus gave to his disciples about their joy in being ever watchful and waiting and awake. He told them that, that no one knew the hour or the day that he was going to come, not even the son, but only the father, and they should be waiting. They should stay big-sighted, expectant, looking for him, waiting for him, because he would come like a thief. He would come without warning. He would come and surprise the whole world. And in part, he would declare his glory in that way. Now listen, I'm gonna read a little passage of scripture. It'll be on the screen. Follow along or you can turn in your copy. In Matthew 24, you heard this, some of this earlier. I'm gonna read two parts of it. I'm gonna read them a little bit out of order though. Matthew 24, 42 to 44, listen to this. Hear again the encouraging call to alertness and being ready and watchful because Jesus comes like a thief in the night. Therefore, be on the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must be ready as well. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. This is a plea to be in particular spiritually awake. Are you spiritually awake? How do you feel when you wake up in the morning? You feel groggy, your eyes like mine kind of sag down, you look real tired. You try as fast as you can to guzzle down probably coffee or something else to get you awake. 
And even then you just feel sluggish until finally you get going. There is a spiritual version of this that Jesus is warning against. He is saying, just as you can be physically groggy in the morning, you do not want to be spiritually groggy. You need to be alert. You need to be alert because of who is coming and because you expect and look forward to his arrival, to this ultimate moment in history when he will return to judge and renew the whole world. Just prior to that passage in verses 36 to 41, this was said, but about that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. For the coming of the son of man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. Now that's going to be kind of confusing if you've read those books left behind. Because in the left behind books, you don't want to be left behind. But in scripture, in this text, you do want to be left behind. Because what's happening is the whole world is there and they're, you hear, they're they're engrossed in everyday life. They're distracted by the present moment. They are eating and drinking, being married and giving in marriage and living their lives and they're oblivious to the flood of God's ultimate judgment coming. They don't know that it's coming and when it comes like a flood in Noah's day, they are swept away. It wasn't Noah and his family that were swept away. It was all of the people that were not awake. They were not spiritually alert. This is the caution to the world. This is part of, part of the gospel promise and declaration is that the gospel says, wake up, wake up so that you'll be ready so that you won't be swept away. Rather, you'll be covered by the good news of Jesus. He will come and he will receive you and take you into his arms and keep you forevermore. He will defend you. He will hold you. That's what this is all about. And therefore, he tells his people, He tells his people, stay awake. That text goes on and makes it even more clear. They didn't understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. At that time, there will be two in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Capture the picture again. He's painting it in a thousand analogies over and over to get it. What is happening to them? They're stuck in this worldly life. They're only focused on this here and now. They're only focused on what's right in front of them. They're so caught up in life that they're not spiritually alert to the ultimate realities that really matter. This is a firm recommendation to stay spiritually awake. This is what is happening to the kings of the nations of the world and they representing the people of the world in this final day. They are asleep. They don't realize what they're getting into. They don't realize what's coming upon the world. The kings of the earth are not alert to the Lord's conquering power and purpose. But we are alert. We have been awakened. That's the beauty of the gospel. 
That's why salvation is by grace alone, because darkness has, has covered over all of, all of us. We can't escape. There's a shroud over our eyes and hearts. In fact, our hearts don't want to see the light. We're asleep in the light until, until he awakens you, until he turns on the lights, until he opens your eyes and unstops your ears and in floods this incredible announcement of good news, of grace and mercy and sacrifice for your sin and, and a king that will satisfy you forevermore. That's what the gospel is. And that's what we have received. If you're in Christ, you have been made spiritually awake. But nevertheless, don't sleep on spiritual sleepiness. Beware that even in your own heart is remaining sin. Even, even you and I now can be lulled to sleep by the things in our lives so that we lose sight of what's really true and what's really important. I had a friend who I roomed with in college in an apartment and one of the most interesting things to see, and I don't mean this to minimize it at all, it was, it was genuinely interesting, was his battle with narcolepsy. He could fall asleep at any moment. He was always tired. He was always trying to, trying to stay awake. And, and you wonder, how does that work in real life? In fact, there was a study done recently of those who have narcolepsy in 2020. 66% of the study admitted to having fallen asleep while driving. How does that make you feel when you're out on the road today? Or you might have seen in the news recently the Egyptian airline pilots that fell asleep and overshot their destination until the alarms were going off, waking them up because the tower couldn't get a hold of them on the radio. They had to turn around and circle back and land the plane, and then, of course, they were promptly fired. Those are serious mistakes. That It's serious to be sleepy it's never more serious than being spiritually sleepy. It's far worse. It's devastating. We're not talking about crashing a plane. We're talking about crashing your soul. There's nothing more important than being spiritually awake. But as we've said, we live in a hard world darkened by sin. Stay awake. Both special grace and common grace that God brings to the world. Special grace is the grace that he bestows upon his people through faith in Christ as he comes to them and awakens them and keeps them and continues by his Holy Spirit to work his grace in our lives. Common grace, the grace that everyone experiences in the world. Even the, even the, the atheists of the world have all of these enjoyments because of God's common grace. Or you see common grace at work because there are laws that keep everything in control. What is grace doing? What grace is doing is creating circles of safety. And if you get outside the circle of safety, it's a hard, cold, dark world. All bets are off at that point. You see this at least in some way, and I say this with ultimate compassion, as you drive around town, particularly downtown, and you see people begging on the corner. Stop for a moment and really look at them. They are in darkness and the hardness of life. I warn my children, don't leave the circle of safety. Be alert. Because if you're not careful and you slip outside the circle, it's going to get crazy 
It's crazy out there. This is in part what we're seeing in texts like this is this caution to be spiritually awake and to rejoice because we have been given the gift of the gospel which awakens us before it's too late. For these kings of the world, for those who remain at this time, as we're reading in Revelation 16, it is too late. Once asleep, always asleep. But it's not too late now. And that's why we encourage every person that we can to make your, as the Bible says, calling an election sure. Be sure that you're in the faith. Why? Because you have remaining sin, because you're prone to be deceived, because you might not be seeing things clearly. You need the help of God's word. You need the help of his people. You need the help of himself to remind you of what is true and to keep you moving forward in the faith to keep us spiritually alert. Listen again to what Isaiah in chapter nine says about Christ coming into the world. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. This is what has happened to us. That's why you're sitting here if you're in Christ Or perhaps if you're not in Christ and you're sitting here, perhaps this is what God intends to do for you. Maybe he is shining his light upon you now. Maybe he is turning your heart to himself now. Maybe he is showering you with grace as you hear his word and you hear about his gospel and you hear about his power and his love. Maybe he's doing that for you now. If that's you, I encourage you, run to him. Be converted. This is the day of your salvation. Come to Christ. Wake up and belong to Christ. And if you're already in Christ, hear the plea of the text again. Stay spiritually awake. Whatever you have to do to keep yourself awake in Christ, do all that you can. Keep hearing the good news. Keep reading the word of God. Keep being with other believers. Keep your heart and mind set on Christ all the time, and stay spiritually awake. The final truth this morning is an ultimately hopeful one for those who are awake, and that is that the faithful, wakeful, will not be ashamed at the end. The faithful, wakeful, will not be ashamed at the end. This is the great blessing of God that we have been awakened. I want you to think for a moment if you have recollection of it, and not every one of us does, and it's okay that if you don't. But can you remember how or when you were awakened to the truth of the gospel? Do you have a sense of how you came to faith? It may for some of us be this boom, I like woke up and it all made sense. And I was a Christian. And I just kept walking with Jesus. That's what I've been doing since then. For some of us, it's like that. For some of us, it seems a little bit more like the rising of the sun. It got brighter and brighter and brighter. And I don't really know when exactly I woke up. I can't tell you the date or the moment. I don't have recollection of that. But I know that I'm awake. And I know that I belong to Jesus. And that's what's most important. Think about that. What was it like for you to be awakened?
there are all kinds of realities in the awakening of Jesus Christ upon his people that we just are still learning about. We're going to keep walking into them for the rest of our lives. That's what we're doing as a church. Really, I mean, do you notice that? That's what we're doing. We're just trying to walk around deeper and deeper into the good news of Jesus Christ. We're trying to see something else that he's done for us to unpack some other bit of the good news of how he has been so marvelously merciful to us, how he continues to love us and care for us even on our very worst days. That's basically what we're doing. Our awakening comes through the gift of his righteousness, of Christ's fellowship. We are united with him. But listen, friends, to what this does for us now. It ought to give us confidence in the world today. You know it's a hard world, but we need not despair. You know that it's a dark world. You know that it's hard out there outside the circle of safety, but we can have hope and we ought to have confidence because we belong to Christ And because we belong to Christ, we will not be ashamed in the end. That is the great joy of knowing Christ. Listen to what it says here about clothes. Verse 15, behold, I'm coming like a thief. And then he says, blessed or happy is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes. Every time I read that, I think that's just a weird thing to say. Keeps his clothes But then there's explanation, so that he will not walk about naked and people will not see his shame. I would venture to say that every single one of us in this room would feel immediate shame if you all of a sudden realized you were naked. And if you would not feel shame, something's wrong. (laughs) But that's the way we are. That's the way we are as fallen creatures. That's the way it's been since the beginning. You know, it'd be a really interesting thing, maybe we'll do this sometime, is just to go through the Bible, picking up a theology of clothes. Because all throughout the Bible, from the very beginning, clothes have played this role, symbolically, even literally, as a covering of our shame, to cover our nakedness. And here it comes up again, in connection with those who stay awake. Those who stay awake do not need to be ashamed. Why? Because they are clothed. It's these kings of the nations and those who follow them who ultimately will be ashamed. They don't know they're naked. They don't know that they're spiritually in danger. They don't realize that they have no defense, that they have no hope in the world, just like we didn't until Christ came to us and shined his light on us and clothed us with his righteousness. But there it is again, stay awake, keep your clothes. Shame is debilitating. Shame holds us back from Christ's best in the end. But in Christ, we lose our shame by seeing ourselves in the light of the gospel. Probably most of us, maybe all of us, have felt in one way or another shame. And it sure does feel like darkness. It feels like a cloud has come over you. It has exposed what you really are. It has exposed who you really are. And that's a depressing, despairing reality when you think rightly about yourself. But this is the good news. The good news is 
that Jesus, by his grace, takes us in spite of who we are, in spite of our nakedness, in spite of our shame and sin. And he loves us, and he covers us, and he forgives us, and he unites himself with us. He marries us, and he stays with us to the very end. He keeps working, and all the while, working in the present moment, he is orchestrating all of the events of the world down to the very last battle, down to the kings of the earth who think they're coming to the great day of Armageddon, this Mount Megiddo symbolizing God's victory throughout the Bible. They think they're coming down for victory and they're coming down for shame. But we have been covered and we are grateful for this. Listen to how this so clearly comes through to us in Romans 10. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Or again in 1 Peter 4, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Ultimately, what all of this boils down to is in addition to staying big-sighted and to staying spiritually awake, we bring it all together by saying that we want to stay gospel-focused, Now, the thing that I hate about that most is how cliche that sounds now. We've said it so many times. It's been written about so many times. It seems like when we do that, it loses its luster. But we need to get the luster back because that's exactly what we are. We've got to be gospel focused. We've got to keep in the forefront of our minds who Jesus Christ is for us and what he has done for us. We've got to keep rehearsing the promises that he has made to us, his faithfulness to us, his, his unashamedness of us in spite of our sin because he is the one who truly loves us. This is a high view of God, not a low view of God. That's the key to all of this happening in our lives. What is it about that being focused on just this little thing right in front of me? What is it about being focused on all the little details of my little life that's so troubling? What is it about becoming spiritually sleepy that's so problematic? What is it about losing sight of the gospel and no longer focused on this great announcement? Ultimately, it is to have a low view of God and then we become bigger and our whole world falls apart. But the beauty of this is that God is at work to keep himself big and to keep us small as an important part of his purposes in the world so that we would know him and rejoice in him. This week we'll have an opportunity in community groups to discuss this. And these are the three questions I'd like, I'd like for you to think about this week. To think about ahead of community group and then in that group time together, sharing together, number one, what does it mean to have a high view of God? 
This is a worthy question for us to really give a lot of thought to. What does it mean to have a high view of God? Number two, how can we cultivate a high view of God? You know, in our community groups, we are trying to be practical. We're trying to be how-to-ish because we want to take the truth of Scripture and bring it into our lives. That's what the whole discussion is about. And so there's the question, how can you cultivate a high view of God? And then finally, we want the world to know about the highness of our God. That despite being so high and sovereign, he's come down into our world, he's understood our need, and he has brought us himself and all of his promises, and he has done all that was necessary for us to know him. We want everyone to know about that. So the third question is then, how can we communicate this high view of God to other people? This is our mission. This is our purpose to glorify God by enjoying him day by day. In these important ways, now even as we look forward to the end when there will be a great and final battle, he will return and judge the world and he will renew the whole world and we will be there with him. Let me invite you to stand with me as I pray and we prepare our hearts to sing again about these truths that we have been hearing. This is our chance to direct our hearts to this high view of God, to glorify him and rejoice over the things that he has done for us and what he has yet to do. Father in heaven, we do come before you with a renewed sense of your exaltation, of your highness, of your your sovereignty, your control, your glory. We are in desperate need of this refreshing every day because we lose sight of you. We lose sight of what you're doing in the world. We become big, you become small. And oh God, we need that to be reversed and turned around. We do pray this morning that even as we sing these words together, that they would work as a means of your grace to open our hearts and remind us of your your ultimate goodness to us. And that we would gain courage for life in this hard world. That we would be sober-minded and spiritually awake that we would be careful to stay within the circle of safety that is your covenant love, that we would cling to you and stay close to you. And then that you would use us, the closer that we are, the louder we would become, the more loving we would become, the more faithful we could become, the more courageous we could become for you. God, comfort us. Comfort us with your grace this morning. Make us who you have designed us to be and use us for your glory and for our own gladness. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.